April 1975. I was in the town of Wow, W-A-U, up in a valley, up uh, in the interior of eastern Papua New Guinea. That's on the eastern side, eastern part of eastern New Guinea. And uh, I was at around uh, 3,500 feet above sea level. I was on, at a field station called the Wow Ecology Institute, and they had a little part of their, their land. They had about 150 acres. Uh, much of it was coffee plantation, but a little corner uh, was hadn't been cleared and had about maybe 25 uh, rainforest trees in a little patch of woods. And there was a single male, Rajiana Bertaparte. The Rajiana Bird of Paradise is the national bird of Papua New Guinea. It's, it's like the greater bird of paradise. It's one of these ones, the classic ones. But instead of golden plumes, it has bright orange plumes like fire. Oh, wow. One morning, I got up early and, and, and walked down there. And lo and behold, there was a single male. A lek often has four, five, six, seven males. But this one, because it was such a miserable patch of woods, you know, in scrub, uh, only had one male, but uh, to, be, to watch that single male, he was about 25 feet up on a branch, beating his wings and erecting his orange plumes and just dancing to beat the band. Uh, I was mesmerized. I was absolutely, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how lucky I was to be standing there that morning at around six in the morning as the sun was coming up to see this bird doing his thing. And uh, I've seen Rajiana Birds of Paradise and another 30 other species of Birds of Paradise display in the in the 50 years since then and uh, uh, it never gets old. It's always special. It always makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And you know it's the sound, it's the location where you are, the sound the bird is producing, not only the voice but also you can hear him moving his wings and making these sounds with his body. And also, of course, the movement of all the plumes as they all work in unison to make create this beautiful, this beautiful experience. Hey, everybody! This is Devin Boker, and you are listening to another episode of the Wildlife. It's the official podcast of the nonprofit, which is focused on interrupting barriers of exclusion in the outdoors and STEM. If you would like to learn more about our organization or how to help, check out the links in our episode notes. And before we go any further, I do need to do this. I need to thank the people who are our member supporters, who make this show possible. If you're not one of them, I understand that this part might be uh, not your favorite part to listen to because it's a list of a bunch of names. But guess what? You could become a member yourself and get on that list. So thank you, Gina Spadafori, Karen Bingston, the guys over at Mad Scientist Pod, Rosie Bailey, Charlie Rodriguez, Charlene Irvin Brown, Kim Drolet, Karen Bergman, Vikram Baliga of Planthropology and the Plant Prof, Angela Seibert, Bridget Fitzgerald, Megan Gariani, and Matt Capel. I cannot even begin to express to you how incredibly excited I have been to, to do this episode, to get this out there, how excited I was to do the interview. It's, it's on the birds of paradise. That's what we're doing today. We're talking to Dr. Bruce Beeler about the birds of paradise. Now, the next 30 seconds, if you listen to the Behind the Sciences segment that came out earlier this week, it's going to be kind of a summary of everything that happened in that. If not, that's just fine. All the same info. 
Dr. Bruce Beeler is an ornithologist and research associate of the Bird Division of the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of Natural History. Prior to that appointment, Beeler worked for Conservation International, the Wildlife Conservation Society, Counterpart International, and the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. Bruce graduated from Williams College and received his master's and PhD studying the behavioral ecology of the birds of paradise at Princeton University. He has been an authority on New Guinea birds for several decades, having authored or co-authored several major work on the biodiversity of New Guinea, including these books, The Bird of Paradise in 1998, The Birds of New Guinea, 1986 and 2015, and the two-volume Ecology of Papua in 2007. To the general public, Bueller is best known for having co-led a widely published rapid assessment survey on biological diversity in 2005 in the Foya Mountains where he, together with an international team of 11 scientists, the majority from Indonesian Institute of Sciences, made a number of scientific discoveries. The findings on the survey expanded on previous research conducted in the region by Dr. Jared Diamond in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Mueller and colleagues, however, returned with the first ever photographs of two species of birds, the bronze parotia and the golden-fronted bowerbird, that previously were only known from a few specimens. Additionally, a previously unknown species of honey eater was discovered, it being scientifically described in 2007 as the waddled smoky honey eater. The specific scientific name, Melopodes carolae, the carolae commemorating Carol Bueller, his wife. Together with the team from 60 Minutes, Bueller returned to the Foya Mountains in 2007, resulting in the first ever filming of several species that had been discovered in 2005, as well as encounters with a then undescribed giant rat and a tiny pygmy possum. We talk about everything, everything. The, the reason that the birds of paradise exist in the first place, uh, the reasons for their crazy appearances and their, their intense dance regimens, the sheer raw power of natural selection and sexual selection, the range of characters that are the birds of paradise, and honestly, just about everything in between. Now, if there's anything that I, that I, kind of have to throw out there it's that that the birds of paradise themselves i mean there's such a range in in appearance and color and it's very difficult to describe those things in in this format without being highly long-winded and still probably painting a picture that's going to be very different in your imagination from what i or dr bruce bieler is trying to convey so because of that i highly encourage you to check out our episode notes for uh, several different links to be able to to uh, get some visual references to these birds okay let's get to it Whether for better or for worse, the birds of paradise get an extraordinary amount of international attention. And it's easy to see why. They're the subject of more than a handful of nature documentaries, typically narrated by David Attenborough. There are plenty of YouTube series about these birds. And almost any time you have a, a nature documentary, a series that is not focused exclusively on the birds of paradise, they are going to make an appearance. Almost undoubtedly. Contrary to what we're seeing in biodiversity in most places, there seems to be an increase in the biodiversity of the birds of paradise, with the number of species growing almost every single year. However, that we owe to genetics. And there are about 40, 45 species, and you'd think I'd know exactly, but 
things are changing so rapidly uh, because of the, the gradual or the rapid evolution of the use of DNA to define what's a species and what's not a species. So things are in turmoil right now. And uh, uh, birds of paradise, like uh, the superb bird of paradise, which I worked on for a number of years in, in New Guinea, is now either three or four species. Uh, not because of me, but because of scientists working in labs, looking at DNA of populations of what I, I knew as the superb bird of paradise. So uh, lots there, basically the birds are splitting up what we knew it thought of as a single species in many cases is, is multiple species. And that makes things a little bit complicated. In many cases, the species are hard to identify because they look similar. The, the plumage, the colors of the birds look very similar, but their uh, genealogies are separate. You know, I, I even have, so I have a few different books on, on birds of paradise and I've noticed that when I look through them, um, in terms of the number of species, you know, some of these books are only separated by a few years in publication, but almost every one of them has a different number. Yeah, and that's because of you know when I when I did my first field guide uh, to New Guinea, there was no DNA sequencing. In 1985, people did not sequence DNA. There was Sibley and Alquist did some monkeying around with DNA, they did DNA hybridization, but the sort of whole molecular genetics of, of birds and other animals had not been achieved. And now it's in sort of in its second or third, third phases. And as each stage, as, as they go from one level to another, first it was mitochondrial DNA, then it was uh, full regular DNA, and then it was full genomic DNA, where you look at large numbers of, of base pairs it's given different answers to the question of who's related to whom. For decades and decades and decades, the birds were very stable and then all of a sudden everything blew up and a bunch of birds that we thought were birds of paradise, like McGregor's mm -hmm. bird of paradise and the, uh, the uh, crested bird of paradise are now, they've been, they have been sent off either respectively to a honey eater family and to another group called uh, I mean, uh, the satin birds. So things are things are in a real mess. And so it, as you look at each book, especially checklists, if you look at checklists of birds of the world that get mm -hmm. published year after year, everyone will be different. And that's yeah. actually bad. Uh, you know, <laughs> people like stability. People like to know what they're looking at, and they don't really like the this upheaval. But I guess you know it's the price of progress. The birds of paradise are a family of birds. Their own family, the Paradiseidae family, within the order of passerines, which are perching birds. You know what a passerine is, almost certainly. It's it's virtually any small songbird that you are probably familiar with. Robins, cardinals, jays, grosbeaks, juncos, all of those. They're all passerines. Now, the birds of paradise are most closely related to corvids, those are things like ravens, magpies, the crows and jays. But with the paradise birds, they live in New Guinea, some on nearby islands, and actually some in northern Australia. All are primarily forest dwellers with a strong affinity for the mountains. They're fairly omnivorous, but mostly eat fruit. If there is a common trait between them, it's that they all have powerful, large feet and bills. Very good at clambering around in the, uh, on the bark on the trunks of trees and out in the canopy of trees. Uh, they have a very powerful voice in most cases. 
We're also incredibly strongly sexually dimorphic, which means there's a strong visual difference between the males and the females. The males on one hand are a bit um, gregarious, highly colorful, highly contrasting, ornate attention seekers. And the females tend to be sort of sparrow-like and plain and smaller. Males and females live for nearly 30 years, which for most people is probably a lot more than you typically think of when it comes to birds. The plumed males are polygonous, not polygamous, polygonous, which means many females. Basically, all they are trying to do is breed with as many females as possible. Most females lay just one egg at a time once per year. Sir David Attenborough once wrote as a Ford to Clifford Frith and Bruce Beeler's The Birds of Paradise in 1998, New Guinea is indeed a paradise for birds. There are no monkeys to grab the fruit, no squirrels to gnaw the nuts, no large mammalian carnivores either. So a male bird is not dangerously encumbered if he develops large plumes, nor is it too risky for him to dance on the ground while displaying them. The corvids arose during the formation of the New Guinea region about 40 million years ago. The ancestral bird of the birds of paradise lived about 20 million years ago and probably looked close to the paradise crow. Might be hard to believe. The very fact that the birds of paradise exist at all is spectacular. And it's only possible because of the uniqueness of the landscapes that served as the proverbial petri dish. New Guinea is a place of tremendous contrast. Its oldest pieces are remnants of the supercontinent Gondwana. While the youngest arose from the ocean as a result of volcanic activity and shifts in the tectonic plates. It's the second largest island in the world, only beat by Greenland. Which brings up a good question. When is an island no longer an island? Like at what point is something hit a peak size where it's no longer an island, it's now a continent? Like what separates Australia, for example? Well, if you Remember our island ecology episode from back in the day. Uh, that definition is quite vague. And basically anything that is markedly different from its surroundings can be considered an island. There are microscopic islands. There are macroscopic islands. Heck, Earth is an island in its solar system. It's kind of an aside. Really, I don't know if there is an answer. Either way, New Guinea is a tremendously large island. Its tropical climate is ideal for biodiversity, and despite taking up less than a half of a percent of the Earth's surface, it's home to nearly 10% of its species. Its relative isolation from other land masses only amplifies this, especially when you consider that unlike other large islands in the area, it was never connected to Asia via land bridge like the one that used to connect North America to Asia via the Bering Strait. Its isolation also means little competition. Much like David Attenborough said, there are no predatory cats restricting them to the trees. There are no primates out competing them for food. In fact, many groups of birds that have become widespread throughout the world have their evolutionary roots in this region of the world. I mentioned that some birds of paradise can be found in northern Australia. Technically speaking, parts of the island of New Guinea itself are a sort of part of Australia, or at least its continental shelf. They've been connected, disconnected, reconnected and cut off again at the surface level repeatedly as ocean levels have shifted and land bridges were opened and closed. During these times, these land bridges acted not just as a physical connection, 
but as a biological freeway for the two landmasses to exchange both flora and fauna. Of course, there are significant portions of the New Guinea landmass and surrounding islands that have never been connected to any continent because they're new and a relative to the overall timeline of Earth's history since. The geology in this region is dynamic and volatile. The massive span of mountains that run east to west across the island are an upheaval of land and a buckling of the Earth's crust caused by the collision of the Australian and Pacific tectonic plates. In this region, mountains grow at rates faster than anything else seen on Earth, three meters per thousand years, which might not sound like a lot to you, but considering the four and a half billion years of our planet, that is tremendously fast. New Guinea is a geologically and biologically complex paradise of wonder, a true testament to the power of nature and the genius of life. These mountains act as islands within an island. They're actually kind of like the floating mountains of Pandora on James Cameron's avatar. Islands in the sky. They define the weather, they feed the rivers, but they also contribute to the island's extreme biodiversity by acting as isolated islands, dividing populations into subpopulations, restricting gene flow, and contributing to the speciation of new species over time. Much like in humans, the male birds of paradise usually get all of the credit, despite the females being the ones who truly deserve it. The males might be the more beautiful, though beauty is subjective, but the females are the reason behind their spectacular looks. The classic bird of paradise would be the greater bird of paradise. There are about six of six of this lineage. They all look basically cut, cut from the same cookie cutter. They just have some different colors and different uh, minor plumes. They look and sound very similar and they live in different sections of the New Guinea region. So the greater bird of paradise, which lives in southwestern New Guinea, is about the size of a small crow. Uh, it has a yellow crown, it has a, a, a emerald throat, uh, it has brownish plumage on the body, and then it has this big set, this twin set of, of pectoral plumes. Those are plumes that come out of their armpits under the wings, and the, the plumes are about maybe a foot and a half long, and they look like they're made of uh, satin or silk, and they, there's a big thatch of them on each side, and they use those plumes in their display. They erect them. They bend over on a branch. They bend over forward and throw these plumes over their head into what looks like a, a volcanic eruption because they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're goldeny. They're golden, whitish color. This is like fire. Um, and they, 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 they form this beautiful halo over the bird, and that halo is what basically woos the female and makes the female impressed and makes her want to mate with that male. It seems like it throws into the face of natural selection to, to exist. Yeah, it's because it wasn't natural selection. It's all about sexual selection. It's the kind of thing that at first glance smacks a traditional idea about natural selection in the face. Charles Darwin once wrote, the sight of a feather in a peacock's tail, whenever I gaze at it, makes me sick. In other words, such beauty, color, and ornamentation goes against the grain of the idea that evolution is all about survival. How in the world does a peacock's tail help it to survive? How does limiting your flight and sticking out like a sore thumb help you to persist and avoid getting mowed down by some predator? You might ask yourself, how could natural selection possibly lead to something like this? 
Darwin would later develop the concept of sexual selection, which proposes that these ostentatious physical characteristics may not help in survival, but they do serve to increase the individual's likelihood of finding a mate. After all, there is no adaptation, no evolution without a next generation. Yes, you have to survive long enough to be able to mate and have offspring, but you also have to compete against others of your same species or work to gain the attention of the opposite sex. The birds of paradise exhibit the type referred to as female choice. And so with the Wilson's bird of paradise, he uses his little curly cute tail feathers that he puts up over his head and waves at the female. He's got that bear, the bright cobalt blue bear patch on his forehead, on the top of his head, sorry. And then he's got a breast shield, a bright, bright green breast shield, and he's got a, a back shield that's bright red that he flashes at the female too. All of those, none of those are for survival. None of those help mm -hmm. a male survive. They just help him attract a female. So that's why it's called sexual selection. It's related to reproduction. The males don't take care of the kids or really take on any parental duties, while the females have to go through the incredibly energetically taxing process of producing an egg, raising it, and seeing to their offspring's survival. And remember, just one egg per year. For the females, the stakes are far higher. They need to make the best possible choice. And so, males do their best to stand out from the environment and other males, and the females make their pick from the finalist, like a March Madness bracket of whichever traits they like most or found most appealing. And so it's the genetics of those males that move on to the next generation, and so on, and so on, and so on. In other words, male birds get sexier because they have to, if they want to stand a chance with the ladies. So, you know, in the birds of paradise, they're monogamous species and they're polygamous species. So if you look at the monogamous birds of paradise, those would be called the manucodes. They look just like crows. They're, the male's black, the female's black. If you see the male and female sitting together, very difficult to tell the difference. There's a slight sexual dichromatism, slight sexual dimorphism. The male's a little bit bigger. Mm -hmm. uh, the males do have a different voice. So they have they have this coiled trachea so they can make a different a, a sort of a, a fancier song. But both the male and female are needed at the nest to raise their offspring because they're fig specialists. And figs mm. are low in nutrition. They need lots and lots of they need lots of trips back and forth to the nest to feed these offspring. Whereas in the polygamous birds of paradise, where the males and females are different and the males are sought, seek to be polygamous, um, they have a different diet and the males, you know, can afford uh, to skip taking care of, you know, the offspring and the females do that on their own. That's because they have some specialized feeding uh, peculiarities that allow them to get away with that. So most birds require both the male and female at the nest for for the babies to survive. In this case, uh, they don't, and that's one of the unusual things about polygamous birds or birds that have this polygamous lifestyle. And just because the examples here in New Guinea are particularly extreme, particularly astounding, doesn't mean that this doesn't happen elsewhere in the world or with only birds. That happens here too. We see sexual selection happening in all the continents. So our version of Birds of Paradise here in North America, if you think, would be the sage grouse, the sharp-tailed mm. grouse. In fact, a number of the grouse that display in these competitive situations called lex, L-E-K, 
It's where males group together. It's basically a male bordello where the males come every day to mate. They come for one reason, to compete among themselves and to mate with the females that come. It's the same for the greater bird of paradise in New Guinea. And so the males form, form every day in these leks and they compete among themselves. The females sneak in and mate and then go off and raise their offspring on their own, just like they do in the birds of paradise. To make this whole thing even more mind-bogglingly clever and romantic is that this sort of selection seems to be completely independent of functionality. Female preference is limitless within the constraints of their own perception. And therefore, so is the evolutionary direction of the species, sometimes to drastic points. Take the club-winged mannequin, for example. It's not a bird of paradise. It lives elsewhere in the world. But the males have developed this chirp, this high-pitched sound that they play for the females to gain their attention. It's something that they do during their courtship dance. But to do the sound requires them to rub the tips of their feathers on their wings together at an incredible pace. In order to do that, their wing bones have had to increase in density over time. And as time goes on, their ability to fly diminishes. You might think that the ability of flight in a bird, especially in a, in a jungle-type ecosystem, would be a more vital, a, a more, a more uh, necessary characteristic to have, something that natural selection would absolutely never give up. But sexual selection in this case proves to be more powerful. And why? Well, the ladies like the sound. Why the diversity? Why the complexity in display and choreography? Different variations arose due to the differing tastes or preferences of females over time, which in turn led to the speciation of the 40 plus species. And because again, the females can afford to be choosy. The males simply have no choice if they're going to stand out from the crowd and the environment itself. So I suppose typically the way that, that I have heard about this sort of thing. So like with Cardinals, for example, um, you know, the way that that people talk about them is, you know, the, the more vivid they are, it, it kind of indicates in some manner to the female that they are healthier, that they have better access to food, that they can compete more against the males for that access to food, you know, things along those lines, like the coloration is uh, basically, it's like a health bar to say, I'm really healthy. Look at how vivid my colors are. Is that, is that the same kind of thing here? I, I just, it's hard to draw the correlation when, when looking at some of these just incredibly ornate structures. Yeah. So uh, lots of lots of evolutionary biologists believe the explanation is is what you just described. It's called tr uh, true true signaling or truthful signaling. You're brighter, that means you're healthier, that means you're a better mate and you can help with all aspects of, you know, life history of the bird. And that's why the female chooses uh, Rick Prom uh, and his recent uh, book called Evolution of Beauty argues that sexual selection is, is a different kind of selection that does not uh, favor, or it does not focus on male health and male vigor, but in fact on these secondary sexual characteristics like the long tail or the curly Q tail or the beautiful pectoral plumes that really are... Uh, Really, it's again, it's just a runaway process. It's not related to uh, being the fittest. It's being the most bizarre. And the female chooses that. Because she chooses that, 
her her choice, you know, which is partly uh, has a genetic component, you know, gets saved and it goes around in a cycle that just sort of self-perpetuating. So it's within the field of biology, there's disagreement about who's correct. Is it true signaling or is it runaway selection? And that hasn't been, you know, proven one way or another. So I'm, I'm in the believer, I'm with Rick Prom. I'm, I'm a believer in a runaway selection that it's not classic natural selection. It's, it's the sexual selection. Now, as a human looking at these birds, of course, we have difficulty telling the difference between males, but you might have to wonder if the females of the species have that same trouble. In terms of uh, the sexual selection, when you see that the males provide no assistance at all to the raising of the offspring or building of the nest or anything, they're providing no assistance at all. They're only providing genes mm-hmm. that the female really, the only thing she's getting from the males are the genes. And so she wants to choose those. And um, the issue of the difference in like in a lek, if you look at all the birds in a lek, we, we have a hard time. We really do have a hard time seeing what, you know, the, the incremental differences between the competing males. Mm-hmm. whether it's a sage grouse lek out in the west or whether it's a greater bird of paradise in new guinea when they're moving around in the in the lek they all all the adult males first of all but there is what you see in the lek actually is you see birds males that look just like females those are younger males mm-hmm. males that look sort of half cooked those are three or four year old males that have some of the plumes and then the adult males the adult males which are usually six or seven years old uh, they all pretty much look alike but uh, so there is an argument, and there is there is there is a lot of uh, sort of uh, fighting among in the evolutionary biology field of, is is in is the lack actually are the males determining who the females mate with, or do, are the females actually choosing? Uh, mm. There's a group of biologists that say the males actually form a, a pecking order within the lack, and only the alpha male gets to mate. Whereas there are other people, I'm in the other camp that says, no, the females actually do get to choose. And they're, they, they have, you know, good eyesight. They're close to the birds. They're looking at, at them up close. And you actually watch the females. They actually clamber all around and, and look at the top of the male and the side of the male and the underside. They give them a good, good once over. And also, in many cases, they know these birds because these sure, birds yeah. are long live. These, you know, there's Uncle Harry and there's Uncle Joe. Um, they actually know these birds as individuals, and they know the best. You know, it's just mm-hmm. like, you know, if in, a, in society, if you're in a, the big man on campus, everybody knows who the big man on campus is. Yeah. You know, it's not just because he's got a sweater with a big P on it. <laughs> everybody already knew that the guy with the sweater with the big P on it is the big man on campus because the word gets around. So yeah. I think it's the same in the Lex. Uh, so it's probably a combination of, you know, the males sorting it out among themselves and longevity and also female choice. Of course, a key in all of this is seeing things from the female perspective. By now you understand that the female birds of paradise are the ones who call the shots. That includes controlling the active courtship itself. When can the male approach? How should the male approach? You might say the females are the queens of social distancing, whereas the males are a little more than overly eager sex machines willing to mate with anything even remotely looking like a female. In most all cases, the male begins a courtship dance while the female is almost nowhere to be seen, watching from afar. If she likes what she sees, she'll move in closer. But if the male makes a move too quick, 
Not too quick though, because their ornamentation slows them down. Another possible sexually selected benefit. Then the females are out of there. How, how do they make those colors? Like biologically, how, how do they make such vivid coloration? Um, most, as far as I know, and I've done no, none of the work, uh, Teresa Feo is working on this. She's an expert on feather structure and feather coloration. Um, as far as I know, most of the colors that we see on Birds of Paradise are produced by refracted sunlight. So instead <laughs> of, instead of dye, uh, uh, pigments, you know, carotenoids and other kinds of pigments, it's produced by the structures of the feathers and the way the feather transmits light. Oh, and so most of the colors are that, and many of them are iridescent, and iridescence is produced by feather structure rather than, than by pigment. Yeah. But apparently there are some pigments. I think the blue bird of paradise has a, blue, a very interesting blue pigment that it produces that blue color. But most of them are, are, are from feather structure. Now, if you've ever seen videos of these displays, you've surely wondered how these birds learn these intensely intricate moves. I mean, I can barely keep up with the Cupid Shuffle. Well, again, there's no knowing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no, no rational knowing. These birds are robots. Just because I know this is an internet joke, I want to throw this out there. Birds are not actually robots, okay? Birds are real. They're not drones made by the CIA. Come on. They're doing what their their you know genotype tells them to do, mm -hmm. uh, and so that you know it's complicated, obviously. And they they it's maybe you know that maybe there's a learning component because young birds you described uh, the the parodia birds that dance on the ground they do this ballerina dance and they actually put yeah. a ballerina uh, a tutu that they wear and it's those those uh, pectoral plumes that they erect as around their their waist when they dance on the ground, it's really quite remarkable. Um, you know, if you watch a David Attenborough film, he'll be sure to show that. <laughs> uh, very often when the male, the adult males are dancing, you'll have young males come in and watch them. It's all in the practice. And what else do you have to do as a young male bird in the rainforest of New Guinea? Young males keep their youthful plumage resembling that of a female's for far longer than the typical male bird, which gives them ample time to practice. We're talking five years of their 30-year life. Plus, older males won't needlessly compete against them or see them as a threat, which is a major benefit. So during that time, they practice. Anything from hanging upside down, spinning, bouncing, bowing, to dramatically leaning side to side, expanding their wings, revealing colorful patches, energetically dancing, or dancing with precision like a professional ballet dancer. This does beg the question though, which came first? The dance or the ornamentation? If it was the ornamentation, then maybe the dance is just meant to highlight their physical traits. If not, then maybe the physical traits are meant to bring attention to their displays? Maybe it's both? The beauty and extravagance of the Birds of Paradise wasn't discovered by or first noticed by Al Alfred Russell Wallace or Charles Darwin or by any other white European. It was known by, studied, and understood by the people of New Guinea. The indigenous people have long admired their plumes and put them to use. To some, the birds represent the spirits of their ancestors. Others feel they are genuinely beings sent from paradise. Their dances have been adopted as traditional dances for local people, and they're used as betrothals, as markers of wealth, or to represent metaphysical beings, or even as an aesthetic inspiration of the traditional sing-sings of New Guinea. 
Outside of that, in Western modern culture, there's even a massive heist of Birds of Paradise feathers and others from a museum in England where the feathers were sold to fly fishermen so that the perp, Edwin Rist, could buy a golden flute. Yeah, you heard that right. There's an extraordinary book called The Feather Thief, one of our past book club books. If you haven't read it, you should give it a read. What are what are some of the great unknowns left with the Birds of Paradise? Oh, you know, there's so much. Uh, you know, there's some, uh, there are two species of bird of paradise. It's in a genus called Paradigala. And this is uh, somewhat plain looking, uh, these two species, uh, blackish with some interesting waddling, this bare skin on their, on their, the front of their faces. Hmm. Um, all we know is we've never seen them display. We've never seen mating. Uh, they're almost certainly polygamous. They, they display, you know, the males and females stay separately. We have seen, at least for one of the species, we've found a nest. Cliff Frith found a nest one. Only the female was at the nest. And that tells you that the birds are almost certainly polygamous. But we know nothing about their mating behavior or their display behavior. Um, we hear them. Uh, so, there, you know, there's a lot of work. That's a, that's a sort of a tip of the iceberg. There's lots and lots of things we don't know about. The, this group of birds, mainly because they live in a faraway place called New Guinea. So lots of the birds, lots of the wildlife, lots of the mammals of New Guinea, you know, very, very poorly known. Uh, mm-hmm. Lots of undescribed species out there, especially of mammals, of insects and plants and butterflies and frogs. Uh, not as many birds. People have really worked over the birds and the fact that they're vocal and diurnal and colorful means, you know, we, it's easier to pick up most of the birds and, and describe them. So, but I would say there's probably still a handful of birds, birds out there in New Guinea. Not probably not birds of paradise, but possibly. Sure. I know, I know in, in near the town, the city of Jayapura is a mountain range called the Cyclops Mountains. And I worked with a naturalist there mm-hmm. and he described a black parodia that uh, he saw only two times come into a fruit tree in the foothills. Um, and he, you know, when I opened the book, he said, yes, I've seen this bird. He pointed a picture of a, 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 one of the parodias, one of the six wide birds of paradise. He said, mm-hmm. that one's here. And of course it has not been described. It hasn't been seen by Western scientists. It has, so uh, that's one, uh, you know, and that's where David Attenborough's uh, echidna, only known from a single specimen that was from the Cyclops of the, the top of the Cyclops mountain. This is a little tiny mountain range, a little bit like the Foya mountain range and not, not so far, mm. far from the Foya mountains. It's one of those isolated ranges like a little Island. So there is probably that bird of paradise waiting to be discovered. So there are probably two or three more uh, birds of paradise that are yet to be found in the Island of New Guinea. So for the young uh, exploratory exploring biologists who are field naturalists who want to get out there, uh, they could start by going to the Cyclops Mountains and checking that out. And, and there are people booking tickets. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. The, getting the permit from the government of Indonesia, good luck there. Very, very difficult. <laughs> so there are some barriers to doing this work. One of the reasons I didn't do that. In terms of conservation, are there any major threats facing them? Not, well, of course, in the long term, because uh, of cli- global climate change, Mm-hmm. Uh, specialized birds around the world in rainforests 
are are you know in in the sort of five next five hundred years, big problems, no no doubt, big problems with the future of rainforests. Uh, in the shorter term, you know what we think of is human activities, that would be um, deforestation. Uh, uh, through mainly through population, you know, large populations of people tend to uh, deforest rainforest areas, and so New Guinea has has done well over the last 500 years because uh, of lower population levels, and as you know, health uh, health improves and as reproductive, you know, fewer babies die in birth. And fewer children die, you know, of, of childhood diseases. The population will grow, and we see the mountain range. We see the grasslands moving up the up up the uh, ridges, up the in, you know, def- as people move their gardens higher and higher up in the mountains. Um, there is, you know, China, you know, loves needs timber to do all that industrial work that they do in their country and near neighboring countries. So they love the timber that comes from New, the island of New Guinea. So a lot of industrial logging, and that'll that'll grow the pressure on that. And also oil palm. Oil palm is only in the lowlands, so it'll only affect the lowland birds of paradise. And there's other lowland species, mm-hmm. uh, but all the really beautiful lowland rainforest and down in the sort of alluvial, flat alluvial plains, uh, those are all under direct threat from oil palm. Yeah, so there's some things to think about. Yeah, be concerned. No doubt, need to be concerned about. How? Well, I mean, what would be your your take home message if there's anything that you wanted people to know about these birds? Well, that's an interesting thing. Yeah, you know, I guess one take home message is watch as many David Attenborough spe- uh, nature specials as possible because. <laughs> You know, he fell in love with the birds of paradise. He saw them first, I think, in 1962 mm-hmm. in Papua New Guinea. And he, you know, fell in love with them and never stopped loving them. And he continues to be a, a, a wonderful advocate for the, the wonders of the birds of paradise. And no one get, can get over watching those display videos uh, of these birds doing yeah. wonderful things. So uh, go on to YouTube, uh, other other vehicles for these wonderful things. And of course, if you can get there yourself and see them yourself, either in northeastern Australia or in Papua New Guinea or even possibly in the Indonesian part of New Guinea, after the COVID thing clears up, mm-hmm. uh, it's a pretty amazing experience to hike, hike up a hill and uh, like to on Batanta Island in, off western New Guinea and hike up a hill in uh, in the rainforest and come to a display site of a. Wilson's Bird of Paradise and hunker down and watch that bird come in, the male come in and do his display. Uh, that's an experience that you're not going to forget anytime soon, in part because the hike in is difficult. It's slippery. It's muddy. You're going to fall down. You're going to get caught in the prickers. You're going to get bitten by mosquitoes and chiggers. So you're going to take home a lot of things, uh, memories, all kinds of memories from doing something like that. It's, it's uh, you know, you can do that. You can join a nature tour. And go do something like that if you feel adventurous. It's it's it. I've done it, and uh, I'll never forget it. When it comes to the birds of paradise, there are still so many discoveries to be made, and so much to be learned. But in in recent years, however, the work has shifted. It's gone beyond the science, beyond the exploration. Now things are about ensuring the protection of the places that these birds 
call home. These birds, they depend on these forests to survive. They've been able to thrive because New Guinea is home to half of the remaining unlogged, intact rainforest in the entire Indo-Pacific region. Mind you that these rainforests are one of the three main tropical rainforests left on the planet, the others being the Amazon and the Congo. Here, there are few roads, buildings, croplands. Instead, it's a sanctuary of the natural. 14,000 plant species, 625 bird species, 289 mammal, 373 reptile, 442 amphibian, and 380 freshwater fish species, all that have been described with, of course, of course, more to be discovered. These forests are not only important for the life that lives here, but for the planet and people living across the globe. The trajectory of the rainforest in this region, it's not looking hopeful. The Indo-Pacific rainforests have halved in size over the last 20 years, mostly across the Malay Peninsula, Sumatra, and Borneo. Now, we've talked about that in Borneo specifically, where it's decreased by a third in as many years, and the impact specifically on orangutans. These forests have provided material, sanctuary, resources for societies for 70,000 years. Today, over 100 million people, that's, that's almost a quarter of all indigenous peoples worldwide, rely on these forests directly for food, water, shelter, and their livelihoods. New Guinea and the surrounding regions have been occupied for no less than 50,000 years. There are more than 17 language families spoken there, and more languages and cultures than any other place on earth of comparable size. And virtually every one of these depends on the forest. Nearby major urban areas like Jakarta, Singapore, they all depend on these Indo-Pacific rainforests for air quality and other resources. Billions of people around the world depend on these rainforests for medicines, antiviral compounds, such as one that's going through clinical trials for the treatment of HIV. The benefits of these forests staying intact are obvious and they reach globally. Some are more obvious than others. Others are a little more abstract in the 120 gigatons of carbon that they are able to sequester. As of 2020, over 20 million hectares have been allocated in western New Guinea for industrial logging, mining operations, and oil palm plantations. Similar movements are happening on the eastern side. Now, is any of this to say that the people who do live there do not have a right to, to use the land in this way? Absolutely not. Of course they have that right. It's their land. None of these comments are meant to suggest that they can't or they shouldn't or that any Western societies know better. But it should make you question our rate of consumption. Our, our consumerism, 
the the impact that that has on countries around the world. Clearly, the value of these rainforests is tremendous. However, there's still incentive to cut it down, to replace it with something else. Why? Why? Once these forests are gone, they're gone for a very long time. There is no human alternative that can replace the benefits that they provide. There's no easy solution to bringing them back. The birds of paradise are just one group of life that will be impacted by the removal of these rainforests. The truth is, we'll all be impacted. Governmental and personal decisions that take place over this next decade will not only determine the future of the people and species of New Guinea, but the future of us all. And it's on that note that for today, we say goodbye. Peace out, Rambo Trout. <laughs>